Hey, maybe some of you have seen this video. It's been circling around uh, social media for the last several weeks, uh, so maybe that's not fresh to you. Uh, but this is Brooks Gibbs, and from what I can tell, uh, from what I've read of him uh, elsewhere and other videos I've seen, he's a, he's a really great guy. Um, from what I can tell, he seems to be a very committed follower of Jesus, which is you know, kind of icing on the cake and all. Um, but his whole premise for stopping bullying is basically Jesus' teaching to love one's enemy. That's really where he gets all of this from, that you ought to love your enemy. And he takes this key to stopping bullying, uh, is resilience and kindness, and he takes that from 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 has this beautiful description, it's a beautiful poem on what love is, and it says, love is patient, and we've taken that word patient, and we've uh, translated an ancient Greek word, of which uh, more accurate description or, or translation is probably long-suffering, and he translates that merely as resilience. And so, love is resilient, and love is kind. That's how 1 Corinthians continues. So apply this to your bully, and he'll be disarmed. It's brilliant, right? And it's simple, it's beautiful. And anyone can do this. Anybody can do this, right? Simply don't respond in anger. My friends, if you're ever bullied, just don't respond in anger. That's all you got to do. Express kindness and you'll be fine, right? Simply respond in kindness and the situation will be diffused. Now that's really good advice. Really, really good advice. Um, But perhaps some of you caught how he responded to the girl uh, during the whole kindness scenario when they were playing the game of kindness. He was going to respond in kindness. He says, call me an idiot. You're an idiot. He says, oh, that's that's cool. You know, it's, it's all right. That's okay. You can call me an idiot. You can say whatever you want to me. Why? Because my happiness does not rest on what you think of me. It's not based on what you think of me. Now, here's where this whole thing gets a little challenging. Because this is a really, really good statement. But my friends, this statement is not true of everybody. It's just not. It's just not true of everybody. It seems so simple to not respond in anger. But what if the person bullying us is reaffirming something that we already believe deep down about ourselves. See, psychologists tell us that identity development, or the core perception of who we are, is based on conditional life experiences. So somebody said something to me once upon a time, or someone did something to me once upon a time, or I won this competition, or I lost that competition, and all of these things, and a million more that we experience on a day-to-day basis, are forming who we are. They're, de- they're helping us develop an identity about how we understand ourselves. Our s- core self-perception is being formed constantly by all of these external conditional life experiences. So if someone comes to you and calls you an idiot, well, that might be your trigger because, you know what, as a second grader, you still couldn't read. And you watched as all of your classmates excelled in reading, and you just wondered, why can't I understand these simple words? Why can't my brain just, you know, comprehend all of these simple words and these letters and put them together in order to read? And you watched all of these people excel in something different. You looked in the mirror, and it's like, I must be an idiot. I must be stupid. Everybody else is doing great. Why aren't, why aren't I doing great? Why can't I do well at this? And then, and then you went home and you asked your dad, he said, Daddy, will you, will you help me to read? I, I really want to learn how to read. I'm really struggling with this. Will you help me to learn how to read? And your dad says, yeah, buddy, come on, let's sit down. And then you struggle and you struggle and you struggle. And night after night after night, you struggle and you just, you're, no, you're making no progress. And your dad is like, come on, man, why can't you just get this? It's so simple. Why can't you just understand what the, these words are, are, are saying? Like, and then he just blows up at you and he calls you an idiot too. And it's just reaffirming everything that you believe about yourself. Or... Maybe you excelled in school as a child, and maybe you did awesome at school. Maybe you were brilliant, and maybe you were super smart in school as a child, and that became that thing which defined you. 
You became known as the, as the smart kid. You became, uh, you know, that straight A was something that you strive for every single time. And you got that A minus that one time on that physics test and you just broke down in tears because all of a sudden that little idol that you put all of who you are in was starting to crack and crumble a little bit. See, the pendulum swings both ways. It's not just all the negativity things that we de- define our identity around. It's all the positive things as well. Now, if someone comes to you and says, hey, you're ugly. Maybe that's your trigger because as a child you watched as your sister was doted upon as beautiful and everyone who just came to you and said, what a nice girl you were. Your sister is so beautiful, but you're such a nice girl. And then you went and you looked in the mirror and you're like, yeah, you know, with this complexion and these glasses and this haircut and these teeth, yeah, of course. Why would anybody say that I'm beautiful? I'm, I'm, I'm ugly. And you began to believe that about yourself. Or maybe you were the beautiful one, and you owned that, and you claimed that, and you relied on that for your popularity. And then all of a sudden, one day, this guy came along that you were crushing on, and he came along, and he chose the other girl. And all of a sudden, that bubble just popped. And that little idol that you claimed your identity on began to crack and began to crumble. And so we're told, you know, just, just don't let it bother you. If someone comes to you and says, you're, you're an idiot. If someone comes to you and says, you're ugly, you know what, just don't let it bother you. It's that simple, right? Just don't let it bother you. Be resilient. And although, my friends, that is the right advice, we need to recognize that the vast majority of people, and I'm talking about the vast majority of people, we have insecurities. We have insecurities about ourselves. And and when those are triggered and when those are pushed and when those are poked, our response may not be to, to lash back in anger, but our response may be to pity ourselves. And our response may be to sink down into ourselves, and our response might be to pity and to wallow in it. You know, the reason we do this is because we don't know who we are, or perhaps better yet, we have come to believe something about ourselves, and we have come to base our identity on our core self-perception of who we are. The thing that makes us us on the labels and the titles and the names that we have been given. We all do this to some extent, right? It's part of living under a fallen world. And so we are in a series right now called The God Who Gives. And so this morning, I want to take this whole package of our identity, these names that we've been given, and I want to reflect on the nature of the God who gives us a brand new name. As I mentioned, the need for this new name is universal because everybody, to some extent, has, has claimed and owned a name or a title about ourselves based on the conditions of our life experience. This is a curse that has been passed on from uh, generations long past, from ancestor to ancestor to generation to generation. We have been inherited this curse. So look at Genesis 3, the first description that Adam gives himself, right? Adam rebels against God. He eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the first description God, uh, Adam gives himself. It's the way he views himself. It's the first title that he gives himself. Uh, it's the first thing that he claims regarding his identity as a person. He says this, I am afraid and I am naked. Or the past tense is fine as well. I was afraid and I was naked, right? I am ashamed. I was embarrassed. I am embarrassed. I was guilty. I am guilty. I was afraid. I was naked. The most important word in this whole declaration is was. Was is the past tense of the, of the verb to be, which simply means to exist in the present moment as the subject of what I am. 
to exist in the present moment as the subject of what I am. And so that might seem just a little bit confusing, but all I'm saying is that we use language like I was and I am and you are. And we use these language all the time and we toss them around all the time. But when we do that, we are tapping into identity identification when we use words like that. We're talking about who a person is, not merely what a person does. And so this is why when our children spew out phrases like, you are nasty, or you are a butthead, like Luke called his sister this morning, supposedly, according to her. You are nasty. You are gross. You are stupid. When our kids say stuff like this, we cut them off immediately. We say, no, 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 guys, come on. The way that Sophia was acting may have been nasty. The way that she spat in your food may have been gross. The way that she was behaving may have been rude, but she herself, her identity is not tied up in those descriptive words. See, Adam comes along and he says, I am naked, I am exposed, and in that exposure I am ashamed, and I am in constant reminder that I am guilty. And so what does he do? Well, he participates in the very first act of religion described in all of Scripture. He, he goes and he cuts some branches off a tree, he sews some fig leaves together, he makes himself garments out of leaves. He tries to cover up his shame. And then he runs from his identity and he hides from anyone who might poke holes in it. And the reason we all cover up our insecure identity and we run and we hide from anyone who might attack it is because we think that when we're exposed, that when all my guilt and my shame and my junk, this, this identity, this, this stuff that I hide in me is, is exposed, that I'm going to be yelled at. And I'm going to be judged and I'm going to be ridiculed because if you truly know what was going on in my heart, you would be embarrassed for me. If you really knew what was going on in my mind, then you would be ashamed for me. And so, you know what, I I don't want that experience within my community. I want you to have a good perception of who I am. And so I'm going to keep all that stuff locked away and you're never going to know the true me. I'm going to run from my ashamed identity. I'm going to run from it. I'm going to hide from anybody who might try to poke at it. And if that thing that makes me me, right, my, 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 my brains or my beauty or my talent, that thing that I've rested my identity on, my core perception of who I am, if that thing that makes me me, if that thing that I have made as the definer of who I am, as the person, is attacked or judged and broken down, then, then I have no idea who I am anymore. You know, if my life is based on the conditional life experiences, then when my conditions change, then I have no idea who I am anymore. And that's scary. So we don't come out of hiding. We stay locked away. And we give a perception of who we are that isn't necessarily authentic to who we are and what we're truly feeling. But look at God's response to Adam, and this is so powerful. He says, who called you that? I mean, you're calling yourself naked and afraid. You say that you're embarrassed and you're ashamed and you're claiming this is your identities, but God's response is, who called you that? You know, where did you learn that from? Who gave you that name? Who told you that that was your identity? Who told you that you were naked? Where did that idea come from, that this is who you are? At the very core of your self-perception, this is who you are. Who said that? And it's in this pause and it's in this question that there is a, a bright light of redemptive possibility. You see, Adam could have said, God, you know what, yeah, God, I did something really stupid, and I'm going to lay it all up before you in my shame and my guilt, and I'm going to expose it all, God. And I'm going to claim it, and I'm going to own it, God, and I am a failure. And in that, he could have experienced the, the beautiful grace of God. 
But that's not what he did. He hides from God. He claims his identity. He wraps it up in himself, and he go, runs into the woods, and he tries to hide from God. And then when God says, hey, who called you that? Who said that this is your identity? Let's have a conversation about who you truly are, Adam. He says, God, no, I don't want to have that conversation. You know what? It's not my fault. It's the woman's fault. You know that, that girl that you put in here with me? That nameless girl at this point? That woman that you put in here with me? God, it's her fault. And so he covers up. And he hides. He's not willing to admit it. And so from that day forward, Adam and Eve, they walk away from the garden and they have this failure hanging over their heads. These are the names they began to give themselves, unwilling to admit it, knowing that they had failed. And from that day, humanity attained and maintained a false identity under a false name. Every time they looked at the clothing made from the slain animals, they were reminded that, that they were failures. God went and he killed an animal and he clothed them in the animal's skin. And so every time they looked at that clothing upon their bodies, they recognized the cost of covering their shame. And they recognized and they remembered that they were failures. They remembered their embarrassment. Every time they looked at their spouse, Adam and Eve, they, they probably resented each other just a little bit because they had blamed the other person for putting them in this state. We're no longer in the garden, right? We're no longer at the all-inclusive resort. We're now in the wasteland, in the wilderness. And this is our new reality. And this is your fault for putting us here. And then they had children. And in chapter 5, something really interesting happens. We're told that Adam and Eve, right, the first humans that were created, were made in the likeness of God. And they were given his name. They were given his nature. They were given God's identity, his worth, and his value. They were given everything that God had, and they were given it to them as a gift. And it was beautiful then. But then they rebelled and rejected God. And now they're children don't receive God's likeness. They receive the likeness of Adam and of Eve. They are given Adam's name and Adam's nature and Adam's identity and Adam's worth and Adam's value. They were given a false identity under a false name. And this repeated for generation after generation after generation all the way down the line until it lands right into your heart and lands right into your mind. You too were given a name. You too were given a nature. You too were given a value, an identity, and a worth by your parents. Now, my parents named me Ross, which is a name that means from the peninsula. It's Scottish. I know, really profound, right? Um, but that's not what I mean here, right? I mean, I mean that we are given, we're given value and a name. We are given a title and a label and a name and a way that we refer to ourselves, which in turn shapes our identity. I have heard external conditional voices about my behavior and my looks and my talents and my birth order. And I've internalized all of these things. And I've said, this is who I am. This is Ross. You know, I knew from an early age that I was loved. And this was a big part of my identity growing up, that I was loved. And I grew up in a household that expressed this love very clearly to me. And that was never in doubt. And that was never in question. And I'm so grateful for that gift. But I was also told on numerous occasions that I was the youngest. And what the youngest meant was that I was little, and that I was incapable, and that I was entitled. So any of you youngest of, I'm the youngest of four, any of you youngest, you have this kind of perception that we are the entitled ones, we get anything we want, we're the baby of the family. And that was kind of held over my head as I was growing up. I was told from different angles, multiple different angles, from multiple, multiple different people that I was perfect. And that's a really, really high standard to live up to. 
I was told that I am the peacemaker of the family, that I was the calmer of emotions in fights. And so whenever there was a squabble among siblings or my parents even got in fights or my parents were upset with, with one of us, I was always the one that people went to to say, give me your advice. I, would, I became the family counselor at a very young age. And all of these things, the names, right, the titles, the things that people placed upon me, these are all external markers, right? These are all external conditions that people spoke into me. But these were the identities that I claimed. And these formed my personal, my core self-perception of who I am. Now, your names are different. The names that people spoke over you, the the experiences you had, the things that you claimed as your title and your core self-perception were different. Maybe, Maybe at a young age, you understood that you were a mistake. You know, because your parents kept reminding you that they didn't really want you, that you were just an accident, and you were just a mistake. And that formed who you are and how you understand yourself. Maybe you were told that you were the responsible one when all of your siblings are the screw-ups, you are the responsible one. And you know what kind of pressure that puts on you to take care of your other siblings? Or maybe you had to take care of one of your parents. Maybe you had to go to, young, to work at a very young age to earn money so that your parents could survive. Maybe you were told that you were the screw-up because you always heard how great your older brother was. You know, and he could do nothing wrong, but nobody ever said that about you, so you were just the screw-up. You could do nothing right. Maybe you were the lush. Maybe you did that one thing at that one party, and all of a sudden you had this, this title given to you from everybody at school that you were just the drunk. You were the class drunk because of that thing you did that one night. Maybe you, were, maybe you were called stupid. You know, you didn't do well on that one test. And even though you tried and you tried and you studied and you studied so hard, you still did not get a good grade. And so you walked away and you said, wow, I must be stupid. Maybe you were popular because you made the basketball team and everybody saw you as the cool kid. Maybe you saw yourself as tainted and damaged because at that party, somebody did something to you. And now you can't get those images out of your head. And so you feel like you're tainted and you're damaged. Maybe you saw yourself as beautiful because that's the word that everybody always used of you. Now, it's really interesting to watch person, uh, I'm sorry, identity um, develop within your children. For those of you who have children, it's really fascinating to watch how this works. I, um, I'll, I'll say to my daughter, Evelyn, she's two months old, I'll, I'll go to her and I'm say, Evelyn, you are, you're so beautiful, right? I use words like this. We all do this all the time. Like, I don't know if you recognize this in the conversations that we have with each other, but we're always constantly giving people titles. We're constantly giving people names. I'll go to my, two, my two-month-old daughter. I'll say, Evelyn, you're so beautiful. But here's my four-year-old daughter, Sophia. She'll say, Daddy, I'm, I'm beautiful too, right? And I'm like, yeah, of course. Yeah, you're beautiful. Or I'll, son, I'll say to my, my son, Luke, Luke, man, you are just, man, you're such a good athlete. Like, you are such a good athlete. And then my son Ethan's over there. He's like, Daddy, I'm, I'm good at baseball too, right? I'm a good athlete too. And I'm like, yeah, of course, right? Our, our internal self-perception is constantly being formed, not only from what is being told to us, but what is not being told to us. We hear what is being said to all the other people, and we say, hey, but, but isn't that true of me too? Or no, that's not true of me. We are constantly forming our core self-perception of who we are. See, like Adam, when we are questioned or threatened, our typical response to this, this, uh, this challenge or this question of our core self-perception is either fight or flight. We defend our identity through our anger or our deflection or our blame shifting or hiding, or we'll run to new contexts that seem safer where our identities aren't under attack. But here's one very simple truth that is so profound that you need to grasp this morning and you need to wrestle with this to the ground. It is this. Wherever you go, there you are. 
Do you guys know this is true? That wherever you go, there you are. And so you think, you know, I got a fight or a flight because my identity, this thing that I have, I have built up as a declaration of who I am at the very core of who I am is being threatened and challenged in this perception. So I'm going to run away. But you know what? A new school is not going to change who you are. A new job is not going to change who you are. A new relationship is not going to change who you are. With all of our insecurities and doubts and unstable foundations, we bring all of that into our new realities. We just bring it with us. It's the baggage we carry. Because where we go, there we are. And in time, that new school is going to feel just like the old school. And in time, that new job is going to feel just like the old job. And in time, that new relationship is going to feel just like the old relationship because we have done nothing about who we are. We have just changed the facade that we live in. If you don't change who you are, the core of your identity, what you rest your very self on, then it does not matter what your context is like. You'll continue to hold on to it. And so my friends, do you want to stop running all the time? Do you want to stop fighting all the time? Do you want to stop questioning your worth all the time? Do you want to be comfortable in the skin that you live in? Then you need a new solution to your identity problem, and luckily, the Bible offers us one. To begin, I want to start with an Old Testament passage uh, out of the prophet Zechariah, and then I'm going to jump to the book of Revelation, because Revelation actually fills in a gap that Zechariah leaves us questioning. And so the Israelites, in the time of Zechariah, they're in exile because of their sin, But God is calling them back to the land of Palestine and specifically to the the city of Jerusalem. And so in chapter 3, this imagery shifts to a courtroom drama. And on one side, there is Satan who is acting as the plaintiff. He is the accuser, and literally that's what Satan means, accuser, and so it's appropriate. We're in this courtroom drama. And here is Satan. He's pointing out all of the flaws of Joshua, who in this story represents all of Israel. He's the high priest at the time, so he is the representation of all of Israel. Here is Satan pointing out all of the flaws. Look at how pathetic you are, Israel. Look how dirty you are. Remember how you rejected and rebelled? Remember how you sacrificed not only uh, to the pagan gods, but you sacrificed your children to the pagan gods? You did all sorts of horrible, detestable things. Israel, I cannot even believe that you are standing here pleading for mercy. You are horrible. You are dirty. You are filthy. Right? Satan is here. He is espousing names and titles and and labels over Israel. And the Lord, who functions as the judge in the courtroom, he actually steps down from the dock and he comes to Israel's defense. And he basically tells Satan to shut his mouth, to stop talking. He asks for his attendants to come and to undress Israel because they are covered in filthy garments. And he says, I'm going to put new, brand new, clean garments on you. See, Israel's standing there completely helpless, but completely guilty before God. And so God, who functions both as the judge, but also as the defender in this story, he does all the work. And then God begins to speak, and he says this, Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates, right, Israel, seated before you, you are men, symbolic of things to come. See, Joshua is the net rep- representation of the, the nation of, of Israel. And so what I'm doing here with you is a precursor to what I'm about to do for all of humanity. In other words, is, is this symbolic reference here. I am going to bring my servant, the branch, he continues. Now this is a title often used of the Messiah, especially within the prophetic literature. Listen, Israel, I am about to send Jesus, he is saying to Zechariah. 
And what follows is what Revelation, 500 years later, is going to address. It's going to fill in one of the gaps because we're left with this very, very mysterious uh, component in Zechariah's story. But Revelation is going to fill it in in just a moment. He says this, See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. And so God comes with a stone in his hand. He comes with a rock. And God has this rock in his hand, and he puts it before the feet of Joshua. Seems a little weird, but we're going to get even a little weirder here. There are seven eyes on that one stone. Seven was the number of divine perfection. Maybe some of you are aware of that. It represents that God can see perfectly. So there are seven eyes on this stone. So what God is seeing is a perfect vision. He is seeing truly. He is seeing honestly. He is looking into Joshua and the Israelites, and he is seeing them for who they truly are. See, we're the people of Israel, and I think thereby us. We, we tend to look at ourselves through the lens of fear and insecurity. We tend to see ourselves through the lens of our fake and our brittle identities. God sees us, and he sees the Israelites for who they truly are. And I will engrave an inscription on the stone, he continues. Now, this is known as a, as a mictum. It's an inscription on stone. And mictums are so rare, but they're so powerful because carving, in their day especially, carving an inscription and an engravement on stone was incredibly hard. It was very challenging, and so it was very rarely done. And so if you wanted to say something powerful and you wanted to be you know, maintained for generations to come, you would write it on stone. And so God felt like he needed to say something and engrave it in stone that was so powerful that it would not get washed away by, this, by the ages of history. And so he, he was not willing to write this on papyri, because papyri can burn, it can dry out, and it can crumble. He was not willing to write this on goat skin, because goat skin can, can get old and, and crumbly as well. It can rot in, in moisture. No, he said, this, this truth, what I'm about to tell you, this engravement, what I'm etching into the stone is so powerful, and it is so true that I need to write it in stone. Nothing else will do. No other medium will do. I have to put it in stone. And so we have this huge buildup to this really climactic event. What's God going to write in the stone? What is he saying? What is he putting before Joshua? And then he doesn't tell us. <sighs> he leaves a blank. He leaves it a mystery. He doesn't say what he writes on the stone. Here's what he says, though. We are told that all of this will happen. We're told that we are going to be given this stone with a new name on it, with a, with a new inscription on it, when the sin of the world is taken away in a single day. That's when God's going to present this stone before us, this mysterious stone with this mysterious inscription on it. When the sin of the world is taken away in a single day, when Jesus upon a cross puts sin to death and provides us with a new gift of new life and his empowering spirit, we will be presented with a rock, and in that rock is etched an eternal truth, declaring something from the very heart of God. But what that truth is, is left a mystery for the next 500 years until Jesus tells us what is etched in that stone in Revelation chapter 2. He says this, I will give each of you a white stone. And on that stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. No, I, I don't have time to go into all the, the details of the context of this first, but what you need to understand is that the white stone is given to everybody who participates in the victory of Jesus. Everyone who participates in the work of God, removing the sin of the world in a single day, will receive a stone. An everlasting truth of a new name that is known only to the person who receives it. It's a profound gift that God gives us as we participate in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now in ancient days, the act of naming someone was the same act as adopting them. 
And so God is claiming you as his own in this. He is giving you a new name if you place your trust. And if you take all of that burden, that baggage, that stuff, that identity, those titles, those names, those labels that you have placed upon yourself, and you say, Jesus, have them. Have them, Jesus. I'm going I'm to expose them all to you. I'm going to lay them out before you. Take them, put them upon your cross. He will do so, and he will put them to death. And in its place, he will give you a brand new name, a brand new title, a brand new label. And in that declaration of naming you, he's also adopting you as his own child. You are now a son of God. You are now a daughter of God. See, all the titles and the labels and the names that we claimed and owned regarding ourselves that we hid and we defended, they've been exposed. And the names and the labels and the titles that corrupted our hearts and our minds that have convinced us of a wayward truth regarding ourselves that we've placed our very false security on, they've all been put to death. If we allow them to be put to death, if we hand them over to be put to death on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so do not be afraid to run to God and say, God, here, have it all. I'm exposing it all before you. Here, this is it. This is what I've been hiding. Because God, as he looks upon your exposure, will not say, holy, how could you ever have done that? Can you imagine what you have done? I am so ashamed. I am not your God. He will not condemn you when you do this. Here is the promise. Here is the truth that when you expose it, God will not condemn you, but he will embrace you. And he will take all the labels and the titles and he will give you a new label and a new title. A new title that says you are dearly, you are uniquely, you are unconditionally loved. You see, I don't love you because you're perfect, right? That's one of those external conditions that you have believed about yourself. I don't, I don't love you because you're beautiful. That's one of the, another one of those external conditions that you have, you know, developed as your core self-perception of who you are. That's not why I love you, God says. I don't love you by all these external conditions. And we need to believe this because above everything else, above every other name and label, you or someone else, has applied to you over the years that the very core of who you are is not the conditional experiences. It is the unconditional love of God for you. And in the same way that God loves each of his children individually, he also loves us uniquely. He has given a name that only you understand. This is a unique love that he has given specifically to you. And in this way, I think that we all individually share a bond with God that nobody else can fully understand. There's some aspect of God's love that only you know, and only you know, and only that I know. And in some mysterious ways, this love that only you and God are privy to is what makes this love so beautiful. If we all experience God's love the same way, if God's love only sang one song, it would be a monotone note. There'd be no orchestra, there'd be no symphony within the love of the church and the love of God's people. There'd be nothing of beauty to communicate to the world. But you understand God's love uniquely in a a special way that I fully don't understand. And I understand God's uniquely in a special way that you don't fully understand. And together we make a beautiful song declaring the love of God to the world. I'm going to invite Emily forward and we're going to reflect on this as we sing one final song together. And so here's the thing. It's the nature of humanity to rest our identity, right, that core perception of self, that core perception of who we are, on the conditions of life's experience. And we defend them through either fighting 
for them or fleeing away from anybody who wants to poke at them. Now, on the one hand, we're afraid of judgment and ridicule we might experience. And on the other hand, we're afraid that if this thing, this thing that we have claimed as ourselves, our very core self-perception, if this thing gets stripped away, if this thing gets taken away, if this thing changes, if this thing is attacked, and I no longer have it, if my conditions change, then I have no idea who I am anymore. And that's a really scary place to be. I'm just a nameless wanderer. But God in our exposure doesn't look on us and condemn us. He rather looks on us and renames us. He calls us beloved child, and in that new name is a new identity. And a foundation that is secure because it's not based on external conditions that change and shift and ebb and flow. It is based on the unchanging love of God for you. And the unconditional love of God for you. You know, I used to think that my worth was tied up in my ability to perform. But now I know that it is based on God's unconditional love for me. And I used to think that my value was based on my appearance. But now I know that my value is based on God's unconditional love for me. And I used to think that I would be only be embraced and I would only be accepted if. And you can fill in the blank with all sorts of crazy things. But now we know that we are embraced and accepted because God in Jesus Christ took away the sin of the world. He took away all the false identities. He took away all the brittle and fragile and insecure foundations that you rest your core perception of who you are on. In the course of a single day, he took them away. He put them to death. And in their place, he gave you a brand new name. You are loved. You are loved loved. 